will remember, I think, from a couple of weeks ago, uh, and actually from four weeks ago, that um, asking that we that we camp in the Easter moment and and really continue to think about uh, the day of resurrection. This is the fifth Sunday in the Easter season. Uh, four weeks ago, we we celebrated the day of resurrection. But we're still in the Easter season. We're still thinking about and, and reflecting upon the resurrection of Christ and its significance for us. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' first encounter post-resurrection, his meeting with Mary. And this morning, we want to look at an encounter that takes place on the very same day, just a few hours later. This encounter that Jesus has with these two followers of his on the road from Jerusalem about seven miles to the town or village of Emmaus. And so look with me at verse 13 of Luke 24, and we'll read together and then seek, seek to think God's thoughts after him. Luke 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Thanks be to God for his wonderful word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray a prayer like this every week. We pray it in your presence. We plead with you for your spirit. 
so that your spirit might do for us what you did for these two on the road. We pray for your spirit to help us see you everywhere in the scriptures, for you are there. And so come now, Jesus, walk among us, and by the power of your spirit, enable us to see you. We ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. We are uh, we're in this period of time in our in our uh, cycle of remembering the the birth and and then the life and then and then the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and then his betrayal and his death on Good Friday and his resurrection on that first Easter morning where we're between Easter and Ascension, the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his enthronement in fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 where he receives from the Father Father all power and authority and glory and a kingdom that will never end. We're between those two incredibly significant, epical moments in redemptive history, the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And Luke tells us in his gospel, in the first few verses, that during those 40 days between the ascension, between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, that Jesus appeared numerous times to his disciples. Paul gives us a partial list of those appearances in 1 Corinthians 15. He He tells us that he appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve. He tells us that he appeared to a group of 500 people at one time. And then he appeared to James, and then last of all, he appeared to Paul. That's just a partial list. How do we know it's a partial list? Because we know from a couple of weeks ago that he appeared to Mary. And we know that he appeared to these two disciples on this road to Emmaus. Multiple instances of Jesus Proving for his disciples and for his people across the rest of history until his return that he is, in fact, alive. Never to die again. That cannot be said of any other person, including those who have been raised from death to life. Lazarus, who was raised from death to life, died again. Jesus is raised, having conquered death. Never to die again. And these two disciples, these two followers on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, sad, dejected. Why are they sad and dejected? They're sad and they're dejected because death has invaded their lives. Death has robbed them of their hope. Death has robbed them and stolen from them, and vandalized, vandalized the riches of being present with Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. So they're sad. And Jesus, whose true identity somehow is veiled from them as they make their way along the road, Jesus comes to them, asks them why they're sad, asks them why they're disheartened and cast down. Their response, of course, is 
Where have you been? Under a rock someplace? Are you the only person in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what's transpired over these last days? And then Jesus does this remarkable thing. This thing that any any thinking, self-reflective Christian would have wanted to have been a part of. Right? Jesus takes them on a walk through the Bible. In 35 or so years of ministry, nearly 40 years as a Christian, I've experienced myself and I've had people come to me who've experienced the thing that I experienced early on as a Christian. They come and they say, I don't know how to read the Bible. It seems like a foreign language. I don't know how to make my way through those 39 books of the Old Testament. I can make some sense of the New Testament. I kind of get what's going on there. But those 39 books, I don't get it. Well, clearly these two on the road to Emmaus didn't get it either because all of it is about Jesus. All of it is about Jesus. And what Jesus does here with these two, and we can only spend precious few minutes trying to imagine what it would have been like for these two on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, walking with Jesus over the course perhaps of a couple of hours or so, then having a meal with him where the conversation continued. We can only try to imagine what that conversation that Jesus had with those disciples might have included. But Jesus says in response to their sadness, to their dejection, to their hopelessness, to their being surprised by the crucifixion. That's what they express here. They express surprise that he was crucified. We had hoped that he was going to be the one. Jesus takes them on this walk through the Bible to show them that the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, were about him and about his sufferings and the glories that were to follow. Don't you wonder where he went? Don't you wonder where he went? Where did Jesus go in taking these two disciples on a walk through the Bible? I'm going to suggest a few places. I don't know if these are the places Jesus took them. But Jesus says, not only here but later in verse 45, that Moses, the law, The prophets, the prophetic office, the Psalms, the whole of the Bible is about him, which means you can go any place, and if you dig around long enough and you are patient to be discerning, you can find Jesus everywhere. You can find him everywhere. Where did he go? Where did Jesus take them? Maybe he took them to Genesis 3.15. Those of you who have been around here for a while will not be surprised. Will not be surprised that it's my suggestion that that might be the very first place that Jesus took these two who were with him on this road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. The initial promise of the gospel. Genesis 3.15, when after the fall, and I find this so deeply encouraging, so wonderfully comforting, when God begins to speak words of judgment, do you know the one to whom he speaks first? 
He does not speak first to Eve. He does not speak first to Adam. He speaks first to the serpent. And passes judgment upon the serpent. And in verse 15 says, I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And then comes this wonderful first promise of the gospel. It is the seminal promise. It is the promise to which, as Samuel Rutherford put it, all of the rest of scripture is a series of explanatory footnotes. Did you catch that? What's the last part of Genesis 3.15? You will bruise him on the heel. He will crush your head. Samuel Rutherford said all of the rest of the Bible from that point forward is a series of explanatory notes, unpacking, unfolding, enlarging, explaining the initial promise. That after the wreckage of the fall perpetrated by the serpent, someone would come who would crush the head of the serpent. But notice, do you notice in 3.15, the second part of 3.15, that there is suffering involved? There is suffering involved in the crushing of the head of the serpent? Jesus, you look at the cross, you see it, don't you? Don't you see the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15? It appears that upon Jesus there is inflicted a mortal wound. He appears to die. He does not die, as we affirmed this morning. His body did not undergo decay. He was preserved and kept. And on the third day after his suffering, what appeared to be a mortal wound proved not to be a mortal wound. He was raised victorious. And the one who appeared to be victorious on the Friday before was in fact defeated. There is suffering in the crushing of the head of the serpent. Is that where Jesus took them initially? Maybe from there, maybe from there, Jesus went to 1 Samuel 17 and the story of David and Goliath. How do you read? And by the way, my wife reminded me as we were talking about these things, I think Saturday morning on the beach. My wife reminded me that there's a very good book on the book table back there. At least I hope there are some copies of it. And if there aren't, we will get them for you. A very good book that teaches us how to read the Bible. And it is called the Jesus Children's Story Bible. If you want to learn how to read the Bible, get that book. How do you read the story of David and Goliath? How do you teach the story of David and Goliath. Why is the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel? What's the reason for it being there? Is it so that we can marvel at David's youthful heroics? Is it so that we can model our lives after David the king? God forbid that we should do such a thing. 
David, the young hero, became the adulterer, the murderer, the deceiver, the liar, and the cheat. God forbid that we should pattern our lives after David. No, the story of David is there to point us away from David, to point us in the direction of a greater David. The story of David and Goliath keeps alive the hope that a conqueror is going to come. Someone is going to come. He's going to come in weakness and humility and frailty as David was young and weak and the least of all of the brothers. He will come in even greater weakness and humility. But the greater David, when he comes, will do to the opponent of God, the opponent of God's people, the opponent of God's purposes, exactly what David did to Goliath, only at a greater level and a deeper level and a permanent level. Is that where Jesus took the disciples? to the story of David and Goliath to show these two disciples that he is, in fact, the greater David, the king. Who is robed not in the unrighteousness of adultery and murder and lying and deception. But the perfect king who is robed and clothed in the perfect righteousness of his Father. Is that where Jesus took the disciples? Maybe Jesus, after starting at Genesis 3.15, took them just a few verses deeper into Genesis to Genesis 3.21. It's a good verse for you to know. It's a good verse for you to memorize. It's a good verse for you to have close at hand. Adam and Eve have fallen, and you know the first thing that they did after the fall, after they committed their act of disobedience, complicit with the serpent in opposing God and seeking to dethrone God and enthrone themselves. You know what they did? They went out to the garden, sewed together a few leaves, and tried to cover over themselves their own guilt and shame. Don't, don't we have, do we have a few hours together? Can we just talk for a few hours about how from those first days of our disobedience we have sought to do the very same thing? Trying our dead level best by acquiring power, by the acquisition of money, by accumulating reputation, by seeking to be conformed to some standard of obedience or duty, some form of righteousness, haven't we from the very beginning been seeking to cover over our nakedness, cover over our guilt, cover over our shame by sewing together our own fig leaves of self-righteousness? It comes in lots of forms, folks. It can be theological. Talked about this a lot with the women at the refuge. There can be theological Pharisees of whom I am chief. Oh, no, you see, I've got it right. 
I've got it right. Just ask me. And if you want to know who's got it wrong, I can tell you that too. And I find my security in my theological system. Folks, it's fig leaves. Or that standard of of obedience or duty. You don't smoke, you don't chew, and you don't go with girls who do. Everybody's got a list, my friends. Everybody's got a list. And we have a very, very hard time, don't we? Embracing those who don't conform to the standard of behavior that we believe is God-ordained, God-anointed, God-blessed. And it's fig leaves. And what does God do after he has spoken to the serpent, after he has spoken to the man, after he has spoken to the woman? Genesis 3.21, he clothes them with garments made of skin, the garments of animals. Did Jesus take the disciples to Genesis 3.21 and say to the disciples, don't you see, in order for your nakedness to be covered, in order for your shame to be covered, in order for your guilt to be covered, there must be blood. There must be blood. And I am the sacrifice in which you must be clothed if your unrighteousness is to be covered. Such a wonderful thing to think. I mean, it really is. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this because I get paid to say this, folks. I live the same life you live. I struggle with my own weakness. I struggle with my own sin. I struggle with my own brokenness. It is a marvelous thing to contemplate that Jesus was your substitute in two respects. He was your substitute in his living to secure righteousness before he was your substitute in dying, shedding his blood for the removal of your unrighteousness. It is an incredible thing to seek to contemplate and get your mind around and get from your mind deep down into the depths of your hearts. It is a marvelous thing to contemplate that as a Christian, your guilt is removed by the sacrifice of Jesus and your clothing has been replaced with his perfect, perfect righteousness. Did Jesus take the two disciples to Genesis 3.21 and then maybe after Genesis 3.21, did he take the disciples to Exodus 29 to further explicate and enlarge upon and explain who he is, what he does? Read Exodus 29. It's a description of the priestly garments that Aaron was to wear when he would go into the very presence of God. And the summary statement of those priestly garments is that they were for glory and for beauty. 
And Aaron had to be clothed with external representations of glory and of beauty because he did not possess glory and beauty in himself. It had to be given to him. It was alien to him. He had to be clothed in something which he did not possess. That's the only way that he could go into the presence of God. And did Jesus, with these two disciples, say to these two disciples, I am the greater Aaron, and I don't need the garments that Bezalel and the others wove together, put together for Aaron. I don't need those garments because I am clothed in glory and beauty. And you get how the dots begin to be connected, don't you? Jesus, the great high priest, enters into the holy place having torn the veil of the temple that separated a holy God from an unholy people. He's the fulfillment of all of that. He tears the veil and he gives access into the very presence of God because of his pure and perfect glory and beauty. He is the high priest. If I'm clinging to his garments, I have access to the presence of the God of heaven and earth. Did he take him there? Did he take him to Exodus 29? Did he take him to Deuteronomy 16? And verse 16, a verse in which God commands the nation to celebrate three festivals every year. The whole nation was to gather together to celebrate these festivals. Did Jesus take them there having taken them perhaps from Genesis 3.15 to Genesis 3.21 to Exodus 29 and all of this stuff about bloodletting and sacrifices and himself as a priest. And did he remind them from Deuteronomy 16.16 of the story of the Passover? You remember the story of the Passover? And folks, you've got you've to understand... <laughs> We have to understand, I have to understand that the Old Testament isn't just about Jesus, it's also about me. And the story of Israel being in bondage to a cruel oppressor, the Pharaoh, is but a metaphor of the cruel bondage that I suffer, that you suffer, when we are in bondage to sin and to death and to the serpent the great accuser of our souls, the one who wants to destroy everything that belongs to God. The story of the Exodus is my story, friends. Did Jesus, having looked at Deuteronomy 16, 16, did Jesus take his disciples back to the Passover and remind them of the first Passover that the head of a household, a father, A father went to his flocks and selected from his flock a spotless lamb. And for five days, from the tenth day until the night of the fourteenth day, that lamb was in the home. 
that lamb selected by the Father, pure and spotless. That lamb was in the home with the whole family. I share this every time I take people through the inquirer's class because it is so important to see what's going on. What would the children do with that little lamb? Cuddle it. Sleep with it. Care for it. Love it. Become attached to it. And that lamb to which those children had become attached, that lamb who lived in that house from the 10th day to the 14th day, the father on the night of the 14th day would take the lamb he had chosen, he had selected, and with the whole family, conscious of what was happening, with a knife, would cut the throat of the lamb. And with the blood, would spread that blood on the doorposts and lintels of that house so that all who were in that house under that blood were safe and secure from the angel of death who passed over all of Egypt. And if you're the firstborn of the children in the house, the death of that lamb is incredibly poignant and powerful for you because in every Egyptian family, your peer, your counterpart in those families is dead, but you are alive. Does this sound vaguely familiar? The father choosing a lamb, the father setting apart a lamb, the father selecting one pure and spotless whom he would slay for the iniquities of his people so that anyone who would come under that blood would be safe and secure. That's the Passover. And the Passover becomes deliverance for the people of God, doesn't it? That is where their journey begins. Remember, this is your story, my story, not just the story of some ancient people from four millennia ago or three and a half millennia ago. It's my story. It's your story. Jesus, not long before he was betrayed, Luke tells us, turned his face toward Jerusalem and on the Mount of Transfiguration conferred with Moses and Elijah concerning his exodus, his departure. Jesus is my Passover. Jesus is my deliverance. And Jesus, just as was true of the pillar of fire by day and the pillar of smoke by night, Jesus accompanies me on my way through this wilderness in the direction of the promised land. 
Passover. The Passover is the beginning of deliverance and the beginning of the wilderness wandering in the direction of the promised land. Did Jesus talk to the disciples about this? And having talked about the Passover, then did he go on to talk about the Feast of Pentecost, first fruits, the initial harvest, the spring harvest? And did Jesus make the connection for them that the day would come upon them soon when that Feast of Pentecost would be fulfilled in the outpouring of the Spirit. The Spirit would become the first fruits of the church, the first tastes, the appetizer of the glories that come with the third feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is final harvest. Did Jesus with the disciples say to them, do you know what the final harvest is? The final harvest is my return. The true Feast of Tabernacles, no longer the first fruits, no longer appetizers, but the Feast of Tabernacles, when Jesus will come in glory and from his harvest fields will gather to himself all those for whom he has died. Did Jesus say to his disciples, I'm your Passover, I'm your Pentecost, I'm your Tabernacles? Because he is. There's so much. Did he take him to Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, two goats, one goat. These things are so precious, folks. One goat whose blood is let. One goat who is slaughtered. The blood from that goat is taken into the holy place. That blood sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant for the cleansing from sin. The second goat, after the high priest, the drama of this is so powerful. After the high priest has placed his hands upon the head of the second goat and confessed the sins of the people, removing the sins from the people and transferring them to the goat, that second goat is taken out into the wilderness. And the expectation is that that goat will die in the wilderness bearing the sins of the people of God. Where was Jesus crucified? Outside the city. Outside the walls of the city. Bearing the sins of his people away from the presence of God out into the wilderness where they stay. Did Jesus take them? To Leviticus 16. There are so many passages. Passages like 2 Kings 5. I love. Frankly I love Tim Keller's insight into this passage. You'll find it in his book Counterfeit Gods. He argues that the most important character in the whole story in 2 Kings 5. Which is the story of Naaman. Who was the commander in chief of the Syrian army. He was the secretary of state of the government of Syria, but he was a leper. Keller makes the observation that arguably the most important person in the whole story is the little girl who is removed from her home, kidnapped and taken away on one of the Syrian raids, and who is taken away from her home for the express purpose of being in the place where this leper can learn where he can be healed 
and restored. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Left home, not because kidnapped, but left home voluntarily, freely, and gladly so that he could come and not only tell us as lepers where we can be healed, but be the healing of our leprosy. Psalm 23. We're going to read Psalm 23 next Saturday. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores. He feeds. He nourishes my soul. Go to Mark chapter 6 and see if you don't see in Mark chapter 6 a fulfillment of Psalm 23. Jesus, the great shepherd who commands the thousands to sit down on green grass in peace and tranquility and who then himself as the great shepherd of the sheep feeds them. See, he's everywhere. I've I've just touched some of the obvious passages. Where did Jesus take them? I don't know. I don't know, but I tell you, he could have taken them to any one of these passages I've suggested to you. So how do you read the Bible? How do you read the Old Testament? How do you make your way through those books that seem so alien and foreign? Look for Jesus. And here's the last thing that we'll say. The last thing we'll say about this. Notice that both in verses 13 through 27 and then later in verse 45, Jesus opens the scriptures to his disciples. And Jesus opens their minds so that they can understand the scriptures. Folks, there are two prayers that are critical for this service of worship when we gather every week. The first prayer that is critical for this service of worship is the prayer of adoration and congregational prayer. That prayer becomes a prayer of invocation, a prayer in which we, having gathered together at the call of God, ask God to come here and be present with us as we affirm his goodness, his glory, and true things about him. That prayer is critical for what transpires here. If God doesn't come, if God does not show up, unseen though he is at this assembly, it is all a dumb show. And the second critical prayer is a prayer that I pray before I preach every Sunday morning. It is the prayer for illumination. What is illumination? Let me ask you this. What happens when you turn a light on in a dark room? The room is illuminated and you see things that you cannot see if that light is not turned on. Folks, your minds, my mind, our minds are dark and they need to have the light turned on so that we can see things that we otherwise would never see.
When you come to the scriptures, when you come to worship, when you come to hear a sermon, this prayer for understanding, for illumination is critical. Don't try to understand this stuff on your own, in your own strength, without the necessary aid and assistance of Jesus who by his spirit intends to do for you and me exactly the same thing that he did for those two disciples on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Pray. And when you hear me pray on Sunday morning, don't take a nap. Please enter into that prayer with me because you need that prayer. I need that prayer to be answered so that we might see Jesus who is the King of glory, who is the Savior and Redeemer and fulfillment of everything that you find across the Old Testament. Where do you find Jesus? You know the answer now. He is like Waldo. You go looking for him. You go looking prayerfully and you will find him on every page. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we struggle to come to terms with your word, would you by your spirit open up your word so that we might see you, the one who has come to fulfill all of these promises, You are the serpent crusher. You are the sacrifice slain so that by your skin of righteousness we might be clothed. You are the great high priest who has entered into the holy place. You are in fact the temple into which we are being built. You are the fulfillment of all of these feasts, Passover and first fruits and tabernacles. Oh Jesus, help us more and more to see you everywhere to the praise of your glorious name. In your name do we...